Japanese people are so good when it comes to collective work. They're really good at teamwork. So even you see at the Olympics, Japanese players are not good individual, individually, but when they form a team, they can beat other countries. So they're really good at collective work. So the reason they're re- we are really good at um, those kind of stuff is precisely because we are taught to, you know, thinking or acting that way to do some. Even you think you even you think that it's kind of wasteful. You you will do it for the sake of. How'd say common good? Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kentaro, and thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Renaissance podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Takahiro, a Japanese fellow. And although he grew up in Japan, he did spend part of his youth in Venezuela and Australia, and has a unique perspective thanks to his exposure to both Western and Japanese systems. We discussed the thousands of hours he had to study to pass entrance exams for both high school and university. What the work-sponsored binge drinking parties in Tokyo are like, and much more. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Takahiro. Mr. Takahiro, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really glad to have you because I've now spent uh, coming up on three months in Japan, and uh, it's my first time living here. It's a really fascinating, beautiful, weird place. You know, I I think Japan is like a different planet. That uh, we can just visit uh, by plane, and uh, so it's a really fascinating place, and I I'm really grateful that you come on today because a lot of Japanese people they don't speak great English, uh, or at least they're very shy, so they don't want to speak it. But uh, what's really you know unique about you, not only do you speak excellent English, but you have experience living all over the world, and you have this perspective where you you're able to compare Japanese culture and Japanese life. To you know, living abroad. So, uh, so thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to do this. Thank you. So, Takahiro, can we start with you telling us a little bit about your early life, where you were born, where you grew up? You know, obviously you have Japanese parents, but I, I understand you were born abroad. So, can you talk a little bit about like your early life? Okay, so uh, my parents are. Obviously, uh, so by way of introduction, I'm just an ordinary Japanese guy that happened to come to this podcast. So, so yeah, my parents was was a Jap is a Japanese, and actually, my uh, father is working at a multi uh, kind of a big company in Japan, and where it deals about like uh, natural resources or oil. So obviously, if you there's no natural resources in Japan, so the way you get resources. Is to go abroad and get from foreign countries. So my father went to、um, United Kingdom to study oil law, and then、uh, my father met his wife. Maybe in England, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. And then they get married, and I was born in England, and I spent like maybe one or two years in Britain, and then I come back to Japan. Oh, I lived in Tokyo, and. Then after that, I lived in several countries, which is、uh, Venezuela, Australia, and I also lived in some rural、uh, Japanese cities where、uh, where it's called Nagoya. And yeah, so right now I live in Tokyo, but I have lived in multiple places all over the world. So yeah, that's it. That's really cool. So you're two years old. You moved back to Japan after being born in England.、Uh, how long did you live in Japan since that time? I guess. 
six or seven years. I lived in Tokyo near Shinjuku. Okay. Shinjuku is、uh, one of the most、uh, you know, popular places in Japan. And I lived there for yeah, six and seven years.、Yeah. So you went to kindergarten in Shinjuku. You went to a bit of elementary school. Actually,、uh, in elementary school, I went to Venezuela. So that I didn't have any sort of、um, elementary school memories in Japan. I was in Venezuela. And then I came back to Tokyo. And then、uh, shortly I went to Nagoya. So I spent my junior high and high school in Nagoya. How long did you live in Venezuela? Three or four years there. And I think this,、uh, when I was in Venezuela, I shaped、uh, how I think greatly because, you know, when you're in elementary school, you kind of form your, you know, personal ability to have like how to use languages or, you know, how to think, think conceptually. So uh, uh, at the time I was in Venezuela. So I think that era, that, That period,、uh, you know, influenced my way of thinking greatly. Okay, so just as you're starting elementary school, you move to Venezuela, and do you remember how that felt? I mean, what you know, at that young age, was it a shock or was it just did it feel normal to you? And and what was it like going to you know growing up you know for a bit in Venezuela? Okay, so this is interesting because my kind of my life memory starts from. My father is saying to me that,、uh, okay, we'll go to Venezuela <laughs> next month or in the two months. And obviously, my wife, will,、uh, no, no, sorry, sorry, his wife, which is my mother, was、uh, surprised. For me, I didn't know where Venezuela is. So I was like wondering, oh, Venezuela, what country is this? And after going there,、uh, after we went there, lots of crazy experiences. So I think the, So, when I heard, heard about idea, the idea, I was kind of small. So, I, I have no、uh, special feeling to that. But during, the, during I was in Venezuela, I was really, you know, kind of got really interesting experience there. So, okay. Can you talk more about that? What, what were the crazy things? What were the interesting things that happened there?、Uh, as you know, Venezuela is a kind of,、uh, you know, unstable country. Uh, when, when I was there, it was like 10 years ago. So the political situation was much more、uh, stable than right now. But in Japan, you never think that you'll get like robbed or you know,、uh, get hurt、uh, walking at night. But in Venezuela, I never went to a street at night because my parents said, like, it's so dangerous, you cannot go、uh, outside. And I never took a subway. And there was a subway in. Venezuela. Oh, actually, I lived in Caracas, which is the capital city of Venezuela. So、uh, I never took a subway and I always, you know, move around with, well, with a car that my, you know,、uh, driver drives.、Mm-hmm. So as a Japanese family, if you move to Venezuela, you're the rich people, right? Sure. You're at the rich class. So you hang out with like、uh, other expats, such as like American family. Australian family, German family. And、uh, I, I went to the international school there. And so the crazy experience is that so when my dad was、uh, doing a softball game with his colleagues, so once in a while, those Japanese workers will you know, gather like in a weekend and do some softball games. And I was there at the softball stadium. and 
and a, like a crazy insect uh, came to my neck or something. It bited me, so I was kind of hurt. So you know, those protective parents will call a you know ambulance, and I was、uh, sent to the hospital. But at, at the time, I thought this is the end of the world. You know, <laughs> as a young kid, you know. And you know, you don't find those kind of insects in Japan. You know, only in Venezuela those kind of insects. Yeah. Was it actually a pretty dangerous insect? Yeah, it's a kind of a, a bee, but it's not a normal bee like、uh, only in Venezuela. I think it it is called it is called abispa in Spanish or something. We went to the hospital, but at the same time, so the softball stadium was close to the you know the poorest area in this capital city and. There was a gunshot that occurred in this、uh, the slums in, in Caracas, and a guy was shot. Like came to the hospital, and I saw that was covered with blood and all those stuff. And oh, I thought that oh, I shouldn't like op- occupy the space of hospital just for me. Like <laughs> those person should be、uh, served first. So yeah, I I saw a lot. So that time I saw a person that actually shot by a gun, and you know, if you if you're in Japan, you cannot have those kind of experience. So yeah, that's one of the experience that I have in Venezuela. Wow, how old are you at this point? Around ten? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Okay, was there anything else that comes to mind? Something crazy that happened while you were there? When it comes to cultural stuff, obviously I was kind of different from other classmates. So as an Asian. So, for some reason, there's no concept of Japanese in South America. <laughs> there's only Chinese. So, for them, Asians equals Chinese. So, for some reason, I was a Chinese for three or four years. People call me Chino、uh, in Spanish. Yeah, and even when when I say that I eat rice for breakfast, they will think that like they will think that I'm a, like a different creature, like. <laughs> You know, they will kind of be scared. So、uh, those cultural stuff also、uh, broaden my perspective definitely. Because when you go back to Japan, it's kind of normal to eat rice. I mean, we eat rice every day. But in Venezuela, it's kind of、uh, if you like if you if I say I, I eat rice,、uh, they will be scared. So that also broaden my perspective. And yeah, those cultural stuff is also one of the big things that I realized that、um, if you. Okay, as a typical Japanese, if you grew up in Japan, you know there's a certain there's a Japanese word word called joshiki, where it is the word that describes that how things should be or like how things goes in particular way, like abiding to the social standards. But for me, as a as I grew up in Venezuela when I was young, I kind of gained some perspective. That can see、uh, Joshiki from a relativistic standpoint. Like I can question, well,、oh, this is not some like、uh, obvious fact. Like there's obviously、uh, people that think differently. So yeah, the I think that's the most the biggest thing that I、uh, learned in Venezuela. Yeah. So fair to say, Japanese people they don't question Joshiki.、Yeah. Like it's like it's obvious, and you don't question it, right? So your time in Venezuela give you gave you this ability to think from a different perspective, and the obvious is different depending on where you are. Do you feel that Venezuela changed you culturally at all? I mean, 
society in Venezuela is very different. You have to, like you said, worry about thefts. I don't know, getting your arm cut off, uh, you know, and uh, and being in danger generally. Do you feel that uh, your your way of uh, your way of acting or thinking changed while you were there, other than Joshki so, perspective? I think this is kind of interesting. So I think the fact that I was uh, the fact that I am a typical Japanese because I, I was born and raised uh, under Japanese parents, and I lived in uh, different countries, which is Venezuela. Let me think in a different perspective or some some sort of comparative perspective. Whereas if I was a, like a Venezuelan and went to Japan, I'm not sure if, if I could think in a, those kind of different ways. So um, my point is that, so I'm not based in either of side, right? Because I, I can be neutral to do, uh, uh, both countries. So the way you think is, obviously, if, you th- if you're in a country, if you're in a one country for all the time, you'll be influenced by the culture of it. But if you live in uh, several countries, uh, you'll be you can be neutral to all of the countries, which is kind of which makes you question all those standard that one culture has. So, uh, am I answering the question? Yep, I understand. Would you say your parents were strict when they raised you? My parents were kind. So they were kind. <laughs> yeah, but. They, you know, as a tip, you know, as many Asian parents are, they were passionate about education. So I, I guess they wanted me to be smart in terms of, you know, get a good grade on tests or those kind of things. But the interesting part is that there was a no like uh, strict grade requirement when I was in school in Venezuela. I was in an international uh, British school in Caracas. So at the time, I learned the most in terms of how I think. So I gained lots of knowledge when I was in Japanese school, but the way the way you think is the most important thing, right? So when I was in Venezuela, I got those perspectives. So yeah. Yeah. My parents were kind, so I, I just did what I wanted to do all really? the time. Yeah. Is that unusual, would you say? I don't know, because my parents, I guess. I have two younger brothers and my parents change the way they treat their kids depending on their char- characteristics. So I think I was a boy that didn't need any like instruction or something. I I did all the all of the things by myself. Whereas my younger brothers, they need more kind of instruction. So maybe they were strict to them, but they were kind to me. So yeah. Actually, I'm really thankful for my parents that they didn't impose like anything <laughs> and just that uh, whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. So you go back to Japan after a few years in Venezuela and you're still in elementary school, right? Mm-hmm. What were the most startling differences between, you know, I, I assume a you know, private school in Venezuela, international school, and then going back to, was it a public school in Japan? So you go back to public school in Japan, and it's your first time in public school in Japan. What were the biggest surprises when you came back? Oh, so the biggest surprise is that you cannot walk around while class in Japan, <laughs> right? So 
when I when I so at first I was always walking around the class while everyone was sitting and taking notes. So that obviously that was a problem for the teachers. <laughs> I learned the Japanese way、uh, gradually. So now I can like you know sit at the class and take notes. But actually, we, me and my younger brother went to a Japanese class at first while everyone was taking the literature. Class, it's called Kokugo in in Japanese. At that class, we also at the Japanese、uh, language class, I also learned、uh, how to behave well from a Japanese class perspective. So that was really different, I guess. Because when you're in an international class, you, you kind of when even there's a class, you don't have to like sit in a fixed place, right? Like. And you can walk around and and talk to other classmates and you know ex- do some stuff. But in Japan, you have to sit in a certain chair and listen to the teacher like carefully and take notes. And the, it, it is it is a requirement. So I have to be set in a box. But I, I gradually adapted. So yeah. When people that I know and my friends ask me. About Japan,、uh, there's a few things that I tell them just to help them understand a little bit about how different people are raised here or brought up here. And one of the stories that I tell is about、uh, elementary school. How every day, like I mean, as far as I know, there are no janitors in the schools in the public schools in Japan. All of the students. So so for lunch, there are some students that、uh, bring the food from the kitchen. They serve. All the other students, you know, you're wearing the white hat and everything. I, well, maybe, I think so, right? Is that right? Correct me if I'm wrong. This is from just my memory. And so the students serve each other. Everybody sits down. You say grace. You you eat your lunch together. And then after that, everybody walks out into the hallway where there are long sinks. And you take your own toothbrush that you you leave at school, and you, everybody brushes their teeth right after lunch. And then all of the students. Push the desks out into the hallway and clean the entire classroom. Did you have the same experience in Japan? Kind of same, yeah. I guess we didn't pull up all the desks to the to the hallway, but yeah, everything is done in a, you know everything is organized there.、Right. Yeah, and、uh, you know I don't know how often they change the roles, but for example,、uh, this month you clean the gymnasium with with your. Gymnasium cleaning colleagues, and then I'll clean the toilets, and then this person cleans the the garden or something. So, so the from from my recollection, the whole school is cleaned by the students, and then、uh, after that, I think there's recess. Go play soccer out in the dirt field, and then you come back and continue class. And for people in you know America or Europe, this is unbelievable that students would clean the whole school. Yeah, but I think this is one of the things that teaches Japanese people to really respect their surroundings and to be clean. Because, you know, in public school in America, you know, where I went, and I think many other places in the U.S., I mean, kids don't care about anything, right? Sticking gum under the tables, you know, like during、uh, lunch, you know, I I I knew some kids that would like throw an apple across the across the room, and I mean, just do absolutely crazy things. But、uh, I think in Japan you're taught to really take care of your surroundings, like greetings. You st- you should say hi to everyone in the morning. And the second principle is that you should clean your room very well. Like, and there's only two principles. 
it is all like only the two only requirements. So in, yeah, it's interesting that um, Japanese um, schools want their students to clean all of the stuff. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Are there any other big differences in elementary school between Japan and Venezuela? I guess Venezuelan school, like discussions, is valued there. I guess, whereas in, in Japan, there you shouldn't question your teacher. Like you, you just gather information. You just listen what what you learn from your teacher. So that's the, I think it's the biggest difference, and I think. Those school experience influences the general social attitudes of the Japanese society. Like Japanese people tend not to think about, tend not to question about what their senior or um, authority says. And I think that's partly because of the educational system where children are not allowed to like challenge the teacher. Whereas when I was in Venezuela, like lots of students were like asking, okay, okay, should should we do this first of all? And the, the teacher, they don't like, you know, the teacher will explain the reason, but they don't beat the boy. Whereas in Japan, that's kind of a taboo. Like you shouldn't ask that. Like if 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 one students ask that, the teacher will freak out. Oh, what are you why are you asking that? We, we, we're like abiding by the rules and like those kind of stuff. So that's the biggest difference, I think. I noticed that, you know, if you, if you do ever ask why in Japan, the, the answer is always the same because those are the rules. There, there's no other explanation. So between elementary, middle, and high school in Japan, when would you say that uh, school started to get hard? I think... I would say from high school, because maybe you know this, but in many Asian countries, people study hard to get a you know good university. When you get in a high school, students will start to think about their future or w- which which university to enter. So at that yeah, at that point, students will like, especially if you want to go to a university. They will study hard to get to the university that they want to enter. Whereas I was surprised that, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the United States, you just go to the university that, that like, wherever like you really want to go, like, you, you, you can go to the closest university or you just, you don't have to do something hard to enter the university. That, that's my understanding. Where I would say in U.S. there's different tiers of universities. So there's like maybe the lower levels, a community college, like a two-year college or university. A lot of people go there uh, first for two years and get that degree. And then they can go to like a more prestigious or like a real, let's say, university and finish their additional two years there. And then once you graduate, you get the, the diploma or the, the degree from the, the, the bigger university. So a lot of people do that to save money. Definitely, you know, you do have to work and compete against other smart people if you want to go to a top university, right? Like, you know, it's not as easy to go to Harvard as it is a local, smaller university. And, you know, there, there was a good university near where I was living in high school called the University of Michigan. I applied there. They rejected me. So then I applied to, uh, to the actually same university, but a different campus in a city called Dearborn. And, uh, well, it's like same brand, but like kids like me that are not sharp enough to go to the, the good campus, they go to the, 
Dearborn campus and they, they let me in. So I went to school there, although for a very short time. I think I feel that they have more options like uh, in regards to what, what you want and what, 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 what you can get in university. Whereas I think in Japanese like culture, I think the only option is to study hard and go to uh, whatever university that you can, you know, enter. So I think that's, yeah, I think there's a difference between uh, Japanese uh, system and American system. I would say in U.S., if you want to go to university, there's always a place you can go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted to say. But in Japan, it's not like that. You're like, like you're fighting to get in somewhere. Really? Okay. I see. Now, uh, in Japan, I think you also need to pass an entrance exam and pay tuition to go to high school, right? This is very unique, I think. I mean, uh, maybe it's uh, common in Asia, but in U.S., everybody goes to high school, no matter what. You don't pay anything. Um and uh, and in the Japanese system, uh, it seems to me like they're they're weeding out people that you know yeah. kind of earlier. So yeah, so exactly. So the if you want to enter a good university, you have to enter a good high school. So that's why there's a high school entrance exam. So yeah, the competition is already starting at that point. Basically, starting in middle school. Yeah, because I, I remember because I I went to elementary and middle school in Japan, but only in the summertime for three months. And in middle school, people are already studying late, um, you know, going to uh, what's juku, like a preparatory school. And, uh, and, you know, I noticed this because all my friends I used to hang out with in elementary school, they weren't free anymore. So were you also doing that? Were you also studying a lot in middle school in preparation for high school? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if there's the same, uh, like similar, similar thing in America, but in, in, Japanese junior high school, there's something called uh, bukatsu, which is a club. Like, so uh, I love soccer. So I, I used to love playing soccer. So I did some, I was in a soccer club with the junior uh, high school. And I, for some reason, Japanese school also values those, you know, extra co- extracurricular activities. So I guess I was more into those uh, soccer club rather than uh, those preparatory uh, school to prepare for the entrance exam, but when I when I as I get closer to the university and entrance exam, I started to study hard. So yeah, so there was a two kind of things that I was you know focused, which is playing soccer and studying for the exam. Yeah, and in Japan, in in middle school and high school, I think it's really frowned upon if you don't do sports, right? And, and in fact, many schools require that you play sports, right? So this is, I think, a part of Japanese culture that is, is interesting to, to Western people. So if the middle school doesn't require you to play sports and you decide not to, what kind of pressure do you have from your classmates or the school? Yeah, so uh, like you, you can uh, like belong to a club that is not a sports club, like a science club or other club but the general percep- perception is that if you yeah pe- even parents it's just my opinion but even parents like want their kids to be in a sports sports club that way you can have a like a healthy school life so if you're not in a sports club people will th- of course people will not think uh, in a People will not think that oh, those are those guys are not good, but at least they will think that 
I have a better like school life because I belong to the sports club, those kind of stuff. So, and it's interesting that those, you know, sports club, it's really, really hard. Like the, how to say the coach will, you know, give us a lot of required to require us to practice a lot, but like, we're not a professional soccer team. So what's the point of trying so hard to win a local, like a, Uh, competition but Japanese so sport so Japanese school sports club is a really really hard like how to say I guess it's more of an educational pro- purpose rather than like just people want like teachers want want them to learn how to like those kind of concepts like, never give up to uh, yeah. it's character building <laughs> Char- character it's like yeah, beating it's a, discipline in the people. yeah it's a char- it's more of a character building so Even you're not good at soccer, or even you're not going to be a professional soccer player whatsoever, the teacher will make us practice hard so that we can have a, you know, for, for the sake of character building. I think, that's, I think that's also an interesting point because I've never heard、uh, those kind of activities outside of Japan. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's a unique system in Japan. My time in middle school, I do remember. Um, so, I, I, I was doing the basketball club、uh, just the short time I was in Japan. And I'm joking with my friends, like, I'm, I'm five foot seven or 170 centimeters. But in Japan, I'm on the taller side. So, I was okay at basketball. But actually, I wasn't very good at all. I remember running outside in the Japanese summer heat for, you know, I, mean, I don't remember how long it was, maybe 30 minutes, you know, just for the warm up or something and thinking, what the hell am I doing here? But、uh, what time does、uh, middle school, for example, start? It's like seven or 7 30, I think. Um, yeah. And, and then it finishes at like 3 30 or so,、yeah. right? And then there's the bukatsu. So, like, but, but it's actually quite long, right? It's like three or four hours? More than that for me, like five or six hours, yeah. Five or six hours. Okay. So, you just spent a full day at school. Then you stay after for soccer practice, which is five or six hours. Now it's like nine o'clock or later. Yeah, maybe. And, uh, From my recollection, you know, many of my colleagues from middle school would then go to Juku, the, the preparatory school. So they get home at, I don't know, probably 12 or something. Oh, yeah. Okay. So people will spend three or four hours for the bukatsu and then、uh, three or two or three hours at, yeah, come school. So, yeah, they will go back at home like in 11 or 10, which is kind of crazy. And yeah, I think. Yeah, Japanese school, like Japanese students are working so hard. So yeah, I think we like, we deserve something for this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and、uh, I just remember this. So, and all the students have to walk to school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can only get permission to ride a bicycle to school if you live more than so many kilometers away from school, right? So you are mandated, you're mandated to walk to school. There's no buses like in America. You have to walk. Rain or shine, you know, I mean, scorching heat, whatever. And you're, you're wearing your uniform because it's middle school. Is high school also uniform? Yeah, high school also, yeah. But university is no uniform. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you put on your uniform, you have your, you have your backpack with all the, all the textbooks and whatever, and you walk to school. Like, I mean, how far do you think the, the students that live farthest away from the school are walking? Is it like 45 minutes, maybe? Yeah, maybe. So、uh, for, for me, I think it was rather the 
how far you live. Like, so if you go to the school, there's a map, whereas the school is pointed as a red dot and there's a circle around it. And if you're living inside that circle, you must walk. And if you're living outside that circle, you should, uh, you can use bicycle to go to the school. And, you know, some students will <laughs> lie their address and, oh, okay, I, I actually, I live here, so I can use a bicycle, but they often ended up like, the teacher will find out that, oh, you're not actually living there here. Like, okay, you should walk to the school. And, and you can't use public transportation, right? For me, I could. Okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe because it's Tokyo or like, I, I, I'm not sure. Cause I, I was going to Jap- school in Japan in like a rural part of Nagasaki and I don't even, I never even took a bus there from what I recall, but, but, uh, I lived in, uh, I spent my junior high and high school in Nagoya. So, uh, for my school, I could use, uh, public transportation if, if you're, if you live far away. Yeah. Okay. But if you're within that circle, you have to walk. You can't take a bus for a bit or whatever you, you have to walk. Right. It's, uh, you know, from coming from Western culture, it sounds to me like just, mandated suffering for for uh just the sake of hardening children yeah i don't know like japanese school require lots of things to students there must be some outcome like (laughs) or it's just a torture right do you think that the kinds of people that this school system creates is worth all this all this suffering that that is uh, built into it? I think it's part of the Japanese system, I think. E- even you, if you go to the Japanese company, they have, there are so many things to do for the sake of you know, uh, working. Off. So you do some stuff, but there's, even if there's no like, uh, reasonableness, you have to do for the sake of company. So if you want like, to become a good Japanese company worker, you have to become a Japanese you tend to be uh, be a, like Japanese good Japanese students, so I think it's more of a, I think it's how the system is rather than whether it's reasonable or not. <laughs> From my experience, there's no air conditioning in the schools. Do they have air conditioners now? You had air conditioning. I, I didn't have air conditioning. We had the windows open and uh, just just sitting there in the hot hot uh, pacific heat and just just sweating it out yeah wow okay okay so so you're in high school you're preparing to go to university and and how much did you know about what you wanted to do and what were you doing to get into a good university yeah so actually i was good at studying and i, I was like inter- so i lived in venezuela and in venezuela you I was in British school in Venezuela, so I u- used English when I was taking class, and I used Spanish to hang out with my friends, and I used Japanese when I was with my parents. Um, so I was interested in uh, language in general, and at the time of junior high school, I think I was good at English relative to other school like classmates. And there's a... So, so you you have to take an English test. So English is a part of the university entrance exam. So since I was uh, relatively good at English, I had like I had little trouble trouble to prepare for the university exam. 
maybe I'm sound cocky at this point, but yeah. But all of my classmates studied really hard to get to the university that they want. And for me, I wanted to study some sort of, I wanted to study、um, language or law. And I thought language, studying language in universities, maybe it's kind of dumb. So I chose law and I entered a universe,、uh, some、uh, law faculty of a university. Yeah. How hard was it to get、uh, into this university? And, and can you talk about you know, how much time and effort it took to prepare for the exam to get in? So I, we talked about the Juku, the Krum school. Yeah. So after you finish the normal high school, you go to the Juku or Krum school to study more. Like,、uh, so the Japanese high school is for, you know, it's. Uh, they teach stuff that the,、uh, re- the government requires. So it's not specifically for preparing for the exam. So if you want to prepare for the exam, some students will go to the cram school or s- study by themselves to prepare for, for the entrance exam specifically. So the hard part is that you have to do all those efforts after, you know, after the school finished. And the, and the sports club yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah,、oh, definitely. You have to do the sports club also. So, when I was in the last year of high school, I think I studied. So, I wake up in the morning and go to the school. And at school, I studied hard. And then I go to the sports club. And at the time, I, I was not interested in soccer. <laughs>、uh, I, I, love, I still love soccer, but I was not into the sports club. But I had to do so. I just like. I did some minimal efforts so that I can spare my time to the study. And I study until midnight for preparing for the exam. So it was a hard schedule for me to prepare for the exam. How many hours were you sleeping at that time? Maybe six or seven, but I study so like 10 hours a day. So, right. Yeah.、Uh, so the cram schools that prepare you to get into university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cram school knows what questions will be on the test, or like, yeah, so they know what they know about the entrance exam better than the high school. So, they so it's kind of a business, right? And Japanese parents pay a lot to those cram schools. So, I think it's and they will, you know,、uh, teach how to prepare for the exam, like, you should remember this and this. and Maybe this year's test, it's this, this year the test is going to be like this. So remember this, those kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and what kind of questions are they? Is it like, in what year did this historical event happen or solve this calculus problem? Or like, what, what kind of questions are on this、um, test? Yeah. So the test is about,、um, so there, there's a, like seven subjects, which is English, math,、uh, Japanese, history. Geography and chemistry, physics. Yeah, so lots of subjects. And so there's two tests. And the first test is a kind of a uniform test. All of the Japanese students will t- take that test. I guess it's called、uh, Senta Shiken. Maybe you've heard of it, but you, it's, it's like a multiple choices. So basically, you have to re- remember stuff. Whereas the second test is Uh, more, more sophisticated test that is conducted by each university. So, after you take the first test, you, you get the score, right? And 
if you get a certain score, you can take to the, you can choose the university based on the score that you get on the first test. So even you, you wanted to go to this university, if the score of the pe- uh, first test is low, you cannot choose that university. So you have to prepare for the first test, uh, which is remembering lots of stuff. Like, like what? When it comes to history or Japanese history, you have to remember when exactly that historical event happened. Dates. Day, not dates, but year. But Japanese history is like 3,000 years, right? Or how, 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 how long is it? <laughs> it's not like American history where you just have 250. So you have to, re- so there's a way to remember the year, the exact year, like they they have like they make a song to remember that you know? really yeah do you yeah. remember any of these songs no i forgot what. yeah so it's kind of crazy but and even in english you have to re- you have to remember lots of english words which is a which is not our native tongue so that for some students that's really hard work so you have to remember lots of english words and even chemistry you have to remember lots of stuff actually i forgot most of them but i remember that it was tough yeah i bet probably memorizing uh, chemical compositions of yeah. this or that and so you spent thousands of hours preparing to go to university going to school going to high school going to cram school uh stressing over it i'm sure and you know, you, you, you've, you've had a great, uh, you know, I mean, you're very young, but you've had a great, you know, career already. Like you're, you're on your way up, uh, you're getting married soon. Everything's looking great. And, and here we are, we sit down. I mean, how many years ago was high school for you? Just like six years ago. So six years later, you know, we're talking here and you don't remember like the stuff that you cramped, right? Do you feel like that was such a tremendous waste? No, I, I it was a really, I thank myself that I studied so hard to get that university because at that university, I met my fiance. So I think. Sure. Sorry. I, I don't mean that it was a waste to put in that effort, but do you think it's a, a waste to uh, for the system to have you memorize all these things that you will maybe never use again? But like school system in general is like that, but especially, yeah, I think it's kind of, a so it's, it's like a double-edged sword. So the, the reason Japanese people are so good when it comes to collective work, they're really good at teamwork. So even you see at the Olympics, Japanese players are not good individual, individually, but when they form a team, they can be other countries. So they're really good at collective work. So the reason they're re- we are really good at um, those kind of stuff it, is precisely because we are taught to, you know, think in or act in that way to do some, even you think, even you think that it's kind of wasteful, you, you will do it for the sake of how to say common good or something. So forming a community, forming a community wise, maybe those waste is useful, but when it comes to the, the actual usefulness of the knowledge, I think it's total waste of time. So maybe we we have to change our uh, educational system to some extent. If you if you if we have if we want to have a more like a pro- product if you want to gain more productive knowledge when it comes to educational system. So my my answer is yeah. There's some good points about it, but I think generally it's kind of waste of time to learn useless 
long wish, you know, in general. I think there's a better way to do so. Yeah, so that's my answer. Your friends from high school, are there many of them that wanted to go to university, but they couldn't get into any of them? Uh, my classmates, I'm not sure if it's uh, special to Japan, but even you fail to enter the university, you can retake the test. So you're not a high school student anymore, but you still prepare for the uh, universal, university exam. And all of my classmates uh, right now, I think, are in a university or graduated from university, but some students took the test like three times or four times. So even so, some of my classmates are still in their like uh, sophomore year. But I think for me, few classmates stopped to go to the university. I think most of them went to a university. Yeah, and you can only take the test one time a year. Yes. Okay. So, so huge pressure. And if you fail, then you have, you have a whole year to just study probably, right? Everyone's just studying full time to try to get a better score. And the test is in winter and in, in, in winter in Japan, uh, there's a flu, you know, there's a seasonal flu. So everyone's so sensitive. Yeah. So it's kind of really, really sensitive event for high school students, I guess, in Japan. I cannot imagine the stress of taking it the, the fourth time, taking the test the fourth time, waiting four years. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I would probably give up after yeah. the first <laughs> yeah. or second. Wow. Okay. So did you get into the your, your top choice for university? Yep. I get the top choice. Can I ask which university it was? I mean, I, was, I graduated from Tokyo University. So I guess it's uh, the best university. It's the Harvard of Japan, right? Uh, did you find that, I mean, was it hard to get it? I mean, like, you know, you're, you're obviously a smart guy, but... but uh, I think it, it was quite easy. Um, no, I'm joking. So, <laughs> I think I was lucky. So I was the, you know, uh, I have to say, I was the bottom of the top class. <laughs> yeah. I think I was lucky, yeah. yeah. Uh, only a smart, hardworking man would say would say that he's lucky. And I, I've heard that in Japan, it's hard to get into university, but it's easier once you're in. Is that yes, true? Yes, definitely. So I think there was minimum requirement for graduate from university. So I think I didn't, even you don't study hard, you can graduate from university. So I think that's, that's the opposite of American university, I guess, where, uh, so I think many Japanese college students will say that they studied much harder when they were in high school. And it's kind of interesting because you study hard in high school to get into university. And after you get in university, you don't study at all. So it's kind of weird, but I think most Japanese college students will say like that. Yeah, I'm just happy for the university students that can finally take a break and maybe enjoy life just a little bit. So, so is university pretty much the first time you can have like a social life since high school? Because high school is just all studying, right? Yeah, like, all study or sports club or... Yeah, yeah. Like in high school, you don't you don't really hang out with your friends too much. Yeah. You're going you don't go out to drink. I don't think anybody does drugs in Japan, really. Yeah, I think so. And, and not that they do in university necessarily, but uh, and I'm sure not at the Tokyo University. People are farting too hard. But what is the nightlife or the you know the uh, let's say party scene or like what what is the social life like when you are in Tokyo University? So you know everyone being exhausted by studying for the you know, preparations. Um, so a- after they enter university, they often 
party hard, like drink a lot. Obviously, you go to the Shibuya station at midnight. There's lots of college uh, students that are drunk and laying at the streets. God bless them. I so funny to watch them. Uh-huh. Do you have that in America? Like people laying on the streets yeah. from drinking? Because because I think it's kind of dangerous. But in Japan, it's kind of, it's a safe country, so there's lots of you know people laying on the streets, but. I think, I mean, definitely big universities in U.S. have this culture of binge drinking uh, or drinking a lot. And uh, yeah, you'll find people sleeping on the lawns or, you know, yeah, it's it's not unusual at all. I, I think maybe the uh, U.K. and uh, Australia are most famous for uh, binge drinking, um, at least uh, from, yeah. from what I've heard. But um, we, we, we also have been drinking in Japan and yeah. I think it's kind of crazy. So I think that part of Japan is the same as other countries. Yeah. <laughs> they party hard and, you know, do some, you know, crazy stuff. Yeah. Did you have your party hard time once you got into university? Yeah, I had like, especially in my first and second year of my college, because I was tired of studying so hard to get into the university. So I should have some fun, right? right. So uh, I, I did. Yeah, I did have those kind of stuff. Yeah. So at Tokyo University, you studied law and from there you graduated. And, and what is that process like to go from there to, to securing a job? Yeah. So I think maybe I should start from college. So uh, I don't know. I should start from high school. So there was a high school library and I read a book called uh, The Fountainhead. Are you an Ayn Rand fan? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow, that's great. Atlas Shrugged is my favorite book. One of my definitely top three favorite books of all time. So, yeah, after reading Fountain Fed, I thought, okay, I should. So I it pulled my ear to, I, I should say, libertarianism. Yeah. And I think Japanese system is the opposite of libertarianism. Completely. <laughs> Completely. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm shocked to have met a libertarian in Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... That was an inspiration when I was in high school, and I, I was so, not completely was I was sort of interested in uh, po- politics, so that's why I chose law. And at law, I thought if you want to have a better society, at least there should be a just tax system. Like you should like optimize the ta- ta- taxation system if you want to have a uh, you know better society. So I chose a job that I can study about tax. So now I'm at one of the big four accounting firms as a tax consultant supporting big Japanese corporation to do some you know, M&A transaction and those kind of stuff. Yeah. Was it hard to get into this company? Or it's like you're from Tokyo University. It's- and I, like, I, I speak English a little, so that also helps. You speak again. English very well. <laughs> <laughs> as everyone can tell so that helped a lot and but so i the funny thing is that um uh, I, I i actually didn't experience the typical shukatsu in japanese which means the job hunting uh, so shukatsu is also the similar thing to the high school you know s- studying where where you have to prepare hard to get to the you know famous company so there's a you know there's a bunch of university there, there's a rankings of university there's also some sort of you know rankings of the company that 
Japanese company. So if you want to enter a good company, you have to prepare hard for the getting a job in a company. And the way they prepare is, I think it's different from other countries because I've heard that like in other countries, you will gain work experience to get a good job, right? You, you do some internship or work as a work in a company or like, or start a business and get some re- real world experience. Whereas I think in Japan, it's more of uh, abiding by the rules, the <laughs> abiding by the shukas rules. Like you have to dress in a certain way and, you know, this, the certain black suit and black tie and the hairstyle should be like this. And really? Yeah. And when you do an interview, you have to answer in a certain way that doesn't offend the interviewer. Whereas I think in other pla- in other countries, they will value more of the practical experiences or the, um, the special ability that you have. Whereas in Japan, I think companies will value that you are sort of uh, you're in a you're setting the box that the company uh, requires so the funny thing is that Japanese students will say that I'm a I'm a you know I'm a special like a uh, personnel that uh, I can contribute to the company but in fact in order to appeal that they have to wear in a certain way and so you have to be unspecial to be special so that's kind of weird in Japan but if the rules are set, doesn't everyone do a pretty good job of fitting in that box? Yeah, so that that's a sort of a minimal requ- uh, minimal requirement, but at least you have to uh, abide by that rule, which is k- kind of uh, tough for some some students. Is there like a cram school version of like yeah, definitely, for jobs? definitely, there is definitely. What is that like? Like people are paying a company to teach them how to be good at applying for jobs. Yes. I'm not familiar with that, but uh, I know that, yeah, there are some and people will, you know, pay for that uh, company to prepare for the, you know, job interview or something, just as the same as the high school's experience that you, you know, pay for a cram school to enter a good university. So I think, yeah, Japanese students are, you know, doing all this you know, all the thing, the same thing throughout their life. So it's a hard job. Yeah. When you're in the job application process um, and you're working for like a, you know, a, a decent company or, a, you know, for an office job, you're applying for an office job. How long is the interview process? Like, is it like, you know, many interviews, like an hour plus each or, you know, how, how rigorous are they interviewing um, you? Depends on the company, but I think if you want to, when it comes to the very good company, they will take like five or six interviews. So the first interview is to screening out, you know, people like me. <laughs> and then the second interview is kind of uh, group work or, you know, uh, to, to assess how good you are with working with other person. And the third or fourth is interview is an interview with the actual company executives, those staffs, and fifth and sixth is the last interview. And I'm not sure if it's particular, it's special to Japan, but there's a higher in Japan, there's a hiring department where they solely focus on hiring new people. Uh, whereas I, I heard that in like in other countries, companies will hire people based on their department. So there's an there's no like a 
HR department that is solely focused on hiring freshmen. Because in Japan, there's a specific department for hiring uh, uh, freshmen from college. How to say? Gra- graduate students. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, and one more thing. Uh, the, the thing is that in Japan, I think what you have studied doesn't matter at all when applying for a job. Whereas in other countries, you, obviously, what you studied in college definitely matters. Like if you want to enter an engineering company, you have to study engineer uh, engineering in college. Or if you want to get a finance job, you have to go to you have to study finance in college. Whereas in Japan, I think it doesn't matter. I think school ranks matters more. Really? Yeah. So with your legal degree, you could apply at an engineering company. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's interesting. So one of my friends uh, applied for uh, uh, like a web design. It's more of an engineering job. And he, he was the same faculty as mine. So as a law student, he went to an engineering company, which is not that special from a Japanese like job market perspective. Was he hired to be an engineer or he's working in their legal department or something? I think he's doing some engineering jobs. So, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I hope he, I hope he's not building any too, anything too important. I'm just joking. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I had not heard of that before. I think in US experience is the most valued thing. And you know, you've probably, you've seen in movies and, and things, but I mean, your appearance, it's like the, the amount of tolerance there is at the workplace and for, for interviews with your appearance, I think is tremendous compared to Japan. I mean, people, people will show up and pajamas practically and it's like well yeah that's that's like not a huge surprise i mean maybe you won't hire them and like perhaps you won't although uh, a lot of my friends with companies in us now they can't find anyone to work so that anyone that's willing they pretty much have to hire them right now yeah it's huge problem in in us um just people don't want to work you mean they're they're working independently right like that because in japan um yeah they we have a similar problem because you know the birth birth rate in Japan is dec- steadily declining. So there's, uh, there's, it's simple that there's not enough young, younger people in Japan. So companies are, you know, eagerly want, eagerly want to hire uh, young people. So I think it's, e- it's getting easier for young people to get a job here because there's, you know, not enough young people here. Yeah. I want to ask you one of my favorite questions I like to ask Japanese people. How many hours per day do you work? Oh, I think for me, maybe eight or nine hours a day. Wow. I'm, I'm managing to work. I, I, I'm managing to do this, yeah. It's maybe the lowest number I've ever heard in Japan. Is that because of the company you work for? or I, I mean, of course, Japan is kind of famous for people working crazy long hours. I have doctor friends that work 20 hours a day, no weekends, which is just you know, mind blowing, but I met so many doctors, uh, that told me this, I'm like, okay, it must be real. You know, I have a friend that works at uh, Honda motorcycles as an engineer. He's working 11 hours a day. And he says, that's pretty good for me because uh, my friends at Toyota are working like 14 hours a day. So is it because you work for a foreign company or? Yeah, I think my com. So the point is that my company is kind of different from a uh, typical Japanese company. So 
And my work itself, I'm dealing more with foreign clients or, uh, you know, foreign member firms. So I think it's more flexible here rather uh, rather than uh, typical Japanese company. But uh, when 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 it when it when it gets busy, I will work like work twelve or fourteen hours. So yeah, if you're working at a typical Japanese company or uh, if you're working at the Japanese government, you will work so like you work so hard. One of my friend is working like like 16 hours a day, 17 hours a day, and they don't pay overtime. So what's the point of working so long if, if he doesn't get paid? But they, I think it's true that people expect you to work harder, you know, to contribute to the company. Uh, whether it's productive or not, like they, you have to show the attitude by the quantity, not by the quality, right? Because you don't, uh, for Japanese, so for Japanese managers, if you want to value a younger workers, uh, it's kind of difficult to assess their work by the the quality of the work. Whereas if if you long if you work for like. 16 or 70 hours a day obviously he has worked worked you know hard so you know they can give a credit which is kind of a weird system but i think it is it is how uh, that's how it goes yeah if i got a job let's just assume that i'm qualified for this job okay imagine i get a job in japan and you know i show up there and all my coworkers are japanese they're working 15 hours a day and i show up and I work eight hours and I'm like, okay, that's all I'm getting paid for. I'm going home. What would my coworkers think about me? And what would my manager think about me or maybe do with me considering? At least you won't get promoted. But sitting <laughs> that said, I think things are changing recently, I guess. I think people are more uh, acceptable in terms of the way you work, I guess. Uh, even there's a, a Japanese... Uh, work called uh, which is re- reforming how you work. I think for my parents' generation, obviously you had you had to work long hours as a requirement. But obviously you won't get promoted if you if you just work eight hours a day. But people are get people think it's okay to uh, d- depends d- it depends on your circumstance. But I guess. At least you will, they will think that you are a weird person. <laughs> okay. Would my coworkers kind of shun me or exclude me because I'm not one of them and working as hard as them? Yeah, maybe they will exclude you because you don't do the hard work. And yeah, I think they will exclude you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand from spending having spent a little bit of time in Japan now and having some friends here that most of your friends, if not all of them, you, you are your work colleagues. Is that correct? Yeah. Most of my friends are not work colleagues, but yeah. Yeah. But usually that's how it is. Um, I mean, usually your main friends are yeah, your, like yeah. your work colleagues. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of a requirement for you to go binge drinking with your coworkers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in Japan, I think Binge for a uh, binge drinking is part of the work. So <laughs> it's part of the work culture. Part of the work culture. So I think you cannot 
uh, say no to. Uh, obviously, you you can say no, but if you want to, you know, get promoted or something, obviously you have to, you know, take part in those kind of binge drinking. And it's it's how the business goes. Like in Japan, the most important thing doesn't get get decided on a formal, you know, meeting rooms. They will discuss rather in those, you know, I'd say nomikai. You know, those interest, uh, important conversation often happens in those informal uh, drinking places. And drinking after work is uh, it's an important part of the Japanese working culture, definitely. So, yeah. How does it work? Like your your manager or your boss will say, hey, this week on Thursday, we're all going out for drinks. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's, it, it, that's how it works. Yeah. Does he pay for the drinks or you depends on the, you know, it depends, but in most cases, the managers or the senior will pay more than the uh, younger workers. And as, as they get, uh, as the associates get like a manager, they will pay more to the associate. How does this drinking party go? I mean, so it's like, how many people is it? Do you go to like one place or a few places? How long does it last? Does it like, does it go until someone falls on their face? Uh, so uh, w- within the drink, the company drinking, there's a formal drinking and informal drinking. <laughs> of course there is. The formal drinking is where like you meet with the boss, like, like the h- higher boss and and where people will gather like 30 or 40 people in a one izakaya restaurant. It's a big group. Yeah, it's a big group. And in that nomikai, people will try to connect with other colleagues that you don't know well so that they can work well in like, so that they can have a, uh, you know, better relationship in the, you know, in the future. So those kind of stuff, it doesn't get crazy, but uh, there's also some uh, nomikai where you go with more closer colleagues, closer boss, and those nomikai will tend to get crazy. Like you will stay until midnight or go some crazy places with their colleagues and they will share the secrets. And that way, uh, Japanese workers will form their bond to work together because if you just work if you just work together as a you know normal business colleague you, you cannot have a you don't have any feelings toward them but whereas if you if you had some nomikai with your colleagues or your boss in a crazy way you can have um, it's you can open up even you, you're working with in a normal business hour. So Japanese people think that it's important. So yeah, my answer is, yeah, there's obviously some crazy nomika after the working hours. Yeah. Do you think this is a good thing that it's kind of mandatory that you go to nomikai and and like binge drink with your colleagues? It's like basically required, right? Like if you don't go, like you're weird and like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore, right? So I think... It's part of the culture, so it's hard to say, but I, I like it because you can have an interesting conversation with your boss that you can never have in a you know business, you know, business conversation. And and yeah, I think it's not necessary. I think it's not 
productive at all. But if working with, uh, if having a relationship with your colleagues is a part of productiveness, I think going to a Nomikai certainly helps. Yeah. How often are you asked to go to Nomikai? So right now, because of the situation of the, you know, the uh, there's lockdowns and uh uh-huh. yeah, Corona. Yeah, people don't go outside often, so they will like go secretly or something. <laughs> so it's not often okay. than before. Before Corona, how often would it be? It's like once a month. Before or? Corona, I was a college student, so I. Oh, okay, okay, right, right, right. I see. Wow, man, that's uh, that's fascinating. Now, your plans are, I mean, you're getting married soon. Yeah. And then you're going to be traveling. Yeah. Hopefully soon, too. Do you think you will? And, and I know we talked before, like you're, you're looking at uh, moving to, to England uh, with your soon to be wife. And congratulations again. Do you think you're going to miss Japan when you when you leave? I think I will. Maybe I'll miss uh, to some extent because um, I'm. So my parents is Japanese, is Japanese, and I'm Japanese. So I will miss Japanese food certainly, but and also I may I will miss some some part of Japan. But when I went to China, I went to Nanjing for like a exchange program, and I ate like Sichuan food, you know, those spicy Chinese food, and I I thought the Chinese food is really uh, delicious and. I didn't want to go back to Japan because I will miss Chinese food. So, so relative to other uh, Japanese, maybe I'm I I will not miss that much, but I think I will miss to some extent. Yeah, I see. You're still pretty early in your career, and you know, as you as you grow in this field, or maybe you do your own business, or you know, find another great job in uh, in England next year. How do you plan to think about investing? Uh, as you as you build your net worth, okay. So yeah, as I said, I read Fountainhead when I was in high school, and I was into uh, libertarianism uh, to some extent when I was in high school and in college. And I happened to watch some Andreas Antonopoulos video. Yeah, <laughs> when I was in like college or something, and I mean his like his presentation. I mean. Uh, blew my mind so maybe you know it but i'm kind of i I like cryptocurrencies or bitcoin so my investment thesis is that if you hold like cryptocurrencies for a certain long time you can have a um, good life so that's my investment thesis do you plan to you know do you plan to buy uh you know property or uh, stocks or are are you just focusing on you know building your your uh, net worth and, and buying Bitcoin? I think to put some perspective, I think it's kind of getting a, a little bit philosophical, but I think people are get renting more and more. So uh, what I mean is that you use, like there's, when you use a smartphone, definitely you are, before people used a physical map to go to cer- certain places. but it, Nowadays, you use uh, Google to Google Maps to get somewhere, which is kind of uh, depending on Google. And even knowledge, we used to have some knowledge, like we used to re- remember stuff, uh, which is owning your knowledge, right? Whereas these days, we just look it up on Google. So we, we depend on 
the knowledge of Google. So we are renting more and more. In that circumstances, I think owning stuff is really important to go against the tide. So I think ownership in general, I think it's a good thing. So Bitcoin's a form of digital ownership. I think owning a real estate is also a good thing because you can have a own stuff. You can have a, basically you, you don't have to be a slave to a, you know some big tech company and have a better life. I think I'm I'm like saying I'm not sure I'm <laughs> saying the right stuff. Uh, so the bottom line is that I'm interested in real estate or cryptocurrency or Bitcoin that where I can own stuff rather than renting some sort renting everything from uh, other companies. Yeah. If I buy a million dollar apartment in Tokyo, I mean, most people that would do that would say I, they own that apartment now, yeah. right? No mortgage, just cash. Mm-hmm. But if I buy a million dollar apartment in Tokyo, then I will need to pay $15,000 per year just in property taxes to the government uh, unless, I, unless I'm okay with them taking the apartment away. Do you think that with this reality, I can say I own the property or did you see that as like me just renting it from the government? That's also interesting. So other than Fountainhead, one of the book, one of the books that I was greatly influenced is that it's this sovereign individual. Have you read it? I have actually. Yeah. yeah. By like James Dale Davidson and William Reed Voss. So the thesis of the book was that as we enter in the information age, where some sovereign individual that is good at like using a technology will transcend locality means that they will reside wherever the tax rate is low. So the government will have to lower their tax rate to, you know, welcome those high net, highly net worth individual. So my point is that yes, owning a real estate nowadays is kind of a, liability rather than asset because you have to especially if you live in a developed country you have to pay lots of taxes and there's lots of um requirement to do whereas if you just hold some bitcoin you, you know the best tax optimi- optimization is to buy stuff and never sell for like you know decades so there's only capital appreciation and hope uh, you know for at this moment no government will no government taxes on capital gain, uh, paper gains. Maybe some some government will do in future. I don't know, but at least if you hold some digital assets, I think it's the best tax optimize. The best tax. My point is that the best tax optimization is to hold digital asset for a long time, so that you don't get taxed. You don't get unreasonable amount of tax. So, but. What I like about real estate is that we have to eat food and we have to like live somewhere. So I think there's some intrinsic value in owning a land, right? You know, even in the Bible, it says about like how to own a land. So I think as long as you're a human being, there's some intrinsic value in land. So I'm, I'm interested in real estate also, not from a tax optimization wise, but perspective, but from some uh, intrinsic value. What I really like about or find interesting about Bitcoin is that um, I think it's really easy to argue that it is the only thing you ever truly own. 
And in fact, it's the only wealth that you can take with you to your death. Up until Bitcoin was created, anything from a house to gold bars, uh, stocks, etc., the government manages the uh, the you know maintains a ledger on who owns that. So it's easy for them to take that away, or it's easy for a country that you know goes to war against you to then to kill you and then take your gold or real estate. But uh, you know, Bitcoin, you just memorize a twelve word seed phrase, and uh, you know, unless you know someone can get it out of you. You can really just take that to your death. And uh, my hope is that, you know, because for the first time there is a form of wealth that cannot be stolen from you, even if you're killed, there's a chance that uh, war is demonetized. You know, there's no incentive to, to, to kill people or to go to war because um, even if you do, it doesn't mean that you're going to get that wealth. So it, it uh, uh, reduces the incentive for, for war a lot. Yeah, speaking of wealth, yeah, so I was in Venezuela and when I was in Venezuela, I used Venezuelan uh, volleyball to buy some ice creams and chocolates. Um, that was 10 years ago, but right now those volleyballs, Venezuelan, so the currency of Venezuelans uh, is, you know, depreciating like crazy. So as a, something that prevents from uh, the devaluing of the fiat currency, I think, yeah, cryptocurrencies are. Uh, Good option, yeah. Do you think that the gulch that Ayn Rand wrote about in Atlas Shrugged is actually Bitcoin? I know that gulch, gulch, gulch is a place, but you know it's it's the it's the place where uh, the creators and builders and capitalists go to escape the parasitic system, right? And uh, so in the book, it's like a place where the characters go to escape, uh, you know, uh, statism and socialism. But do you suppose that uh, that place is actually maybe? You mean the Bitcoin itself is the land? You mean? Yeah, like a like a, you know people say Bitcoin is digital real estate, but you know like uh, you know Ayn Rand uh, uh, created this place where you know people of the mind and and uh, builders went for refuge, and it was like an escape, right? You know, perhaps comparable to Bitcoin being an escape hatch out of the fiat money system. Uh, and the rent-seeking system that that we all live under today. Do you think that perhaps Bitcoin is that place for the the people that create value in the world? Might be, yeah. I mean, at least the concept uh, of digital, own, like regaining, own, like giving some form of ownership, giving back some owner form of ownership to people. That concept itself, I think, is the. I think is what. Ayn Rand's, you know, what was the place, the John John Galt's? I, I think the concept represents some sort of Randian ideas. I think, yeah, that's that's worship. Yeah. Do you know many libertarians in Japan? I knew a few of them, but I think there's not many here. But the point is that I think Japanese people are not that into politics in general. So they don't I think not many people. He doesn't know, uh, not many people don't know like libertarianism, first of all. Whereas if you go to the United States, you know, everything is kind of political nowadays. Very political. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, there's a, of course, there's some libertarians. I I know lots of them, uh, but it's definitely not the mainstream. Uh, Are they colleagues from university or where did you meet them? 
So I, I'm a member of an Iron Institute in Japan. Really? Yeah. Can I join? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Well, I didn't know that you're a big fan of Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's some uh, gatherings, like uh, some Austrian economics gatherings in Japan and Iran meetings and also some cryptocurrencies meeting in Japan. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, Mount Gox was in Japan. The, the exchange was in Japan. You know, Satoshi Nakamoto, obviously, he's not a Japanese, maybe, but... His name is Jap- Japanese, so there's some re- relationship between those, you know, libertarian like cryptocurrencies and Japan. So I think uh, even though Japanese libertarianism is not mainstream, there are some uh, interesting people here that advocate libertarianism. Yes, I see. Japan is a country that uh, has had uh, maybe the loosest monetary policy in the whole world for a long time. Uh, do, do you ever think about this? And do you ever think about how this ends or where this goes? My guess is that I think so. The reason they can keep those loose mon- monetary policy is that not many Japanese are aware of the devaluing of the currency. So they can keep printing, printing money because not many people are aware of what is going on. So they interesting part is that there's only one country that speaks Japanese, which is Japan. So we are kind of put in a box, all of the economic activities. So all of the economic activities that is conducted conducted in Japanese must be in Japan. So there's some necessity to transact inside uh, Japan. So uh, even even Japanese government or or the Bank of Japan prints so many so many money. I think it's some reasonableness because of those isolation of the economy. But I don't know. I don't know uh, like how long it lasts. But I think for me, I I think it's it's a. But I'm not an economist, so I cannot give some specific opinions. But I I want to stress that. Many Japanese people are not aware of their situation because they're kind of isolated from the you know global circumstances. So that's why the policy itself uh, tends to get crazy compared to other countries. Because like if you if you're a, a leader of a European country, definitely you have to you know get aligned with other European countries' policy because all of the transactions are interconnected you know between european countries so you have to follow the standard of the general european economic policies whereas in japan there's only japan that speaks japanese and there's only japanese economy that so the there's no like compare there's no like global standard standard for japanese economy so the policy tends to get unique. I think everything in Japan is kind of unique because of the isolation. You, you, you see the garake, the, the smartphone, the, how to say that, flip phone. So we used to use a flip phone and that's also a special you know, feature of uh, Japanese uh, manufacturing. And yeah, so my point is that 
the fact that Japan, the, the ja Japanese island is isolated leads to lots of weird things. Uh, yeah. I agree. I, I, I would say Japan is a different planet and it must be like the language must be a big reason why Western culture has not really permeated here so much, right? Because people are listening to Japanese music. Uh, people are listening. Uh, people are eating Japanese food, and of course, there's Italian restaurants and such. And like, if you if you want to find it, you can go on YouTube and watch American uh, uh, music videos and such. But uh, you know, you go to you go to London or uh, Barcelona or uh, Singapore, and I think there's much more like American cultural influence there compared to here. And uh, yeah, I think language uh, plays a, a big role here. Yeah. Yeah, so I think because even the way you think, so as I grew up in Venezuela and both in, in Venezuela and in Japan, I know that, or maybe you also know that when you speak in a different language, you think differently, right? When I, when I use English, I, I think in a certain way, whereas in, when I speak in Japanese, I will, I will, I will think in Jap Japanese way, really Japanese way. So I think the way you think is heavily influenced by the language you use. And since there's only Jap, so since many Japanese people only use Japanese, so they have, so the American culture, it, they're like not that influenced by the, you know, American culture because compared to some Asian countries like Singapore, because Many Singaporeans also use English, so they're influenced by the the way Western people think because they understand the language. Whereas we don't use English that much, so um, the way we think is uh, really Japanese. Yeah. So, yeah, my point is that. Yeah. Do you think that the economic bubble in Japan in the 1980s was created on purpose? Because of you, you mean because of. The central banking policy of Japan. Yeah. Do, do you think that they, they, uh, do you think that the central bank was maybe instructed to do that by U.S., for example, or do you think that uh, they they did that on purpose for some reason? Have you ever thought about this? Yeah, I actually. So maybe they play the role. So I haven't think thoroughly about that, but maybe there's a possibility of that because. Japanese economy is heavily influenced by, by the you know American economic policy and and uh, the last 30 years is definitely due to in my opinion the policy of the BOJ the Bank of Japan I'm not an econom economist so yeah so maybe there's a possibility when you say what happened in the last 30 years are you talking about just stagflation the stagflation cuz I think my point is that even you work for a private company in Japan, it's so the way they work is so uh, how to say bureaucratic. So it's it's some sort of extension of the Japanese bureaucratic system. So we are in a big company called Japan. My point is, whereas like if you if you go to Taiwan or even America, there's lots of small and medium sized company that you know, that are flourishing and really independent. Whereas like countries like Korea, even Korea or Japan, it's just a, a sort of a big corporation that Jap Japanese government owns. Like some major big companies in Japan, 
their main shareholders is Japanese government. So Bank of Japan owns 90% of the Nikkei or yeah, something, yeah, right? Yeah. That fact leads to that leads to the point that maybe some mistakes of the, you know, BOJ or Japanese government led to the the last 30 years cuz um our economy is really united in some way like there's little room for independent actors to you know change everything so yeah i think there there was a if there's some reasons for the decline of the japanese econo- economy maybe that's because of uh, some mistreatment by bank of japan or japanese government yeah there's a really nice uh, book and also documentary on YouTube called The Princes of the Yen. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. And uh, the the, the uh, author investigates the the bubble in the in the 80s and and it's uh, like unbelievable the, the the Imperial Palace grounds in the center of Tokyo that that was uh, that real estate was worth more than all of the real estate in California combined at the peak of the bubble. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you like heard, heard stuff like this before, but you know, for, for people listening, it's like just unbelievable. Right. Uh, so this guy investigates, uh, you know, what the BOJ was instructing commercial banks to do during the bubble. And, and, you know, it seems like they're just saying like, just lend out as much money as you can for whatever, you know, maybe there's that possibility. Yeah. Cause the role of central banking in general, is huge in you know in this world. Hopefully, for not much longer. Yeah, <laughs> one of my also my one of my favorite books is the Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that huge, very important book for just opening your mind up to all all the other realities that we had no idea about when we were younger. So hopefully, some sort of uh, technology will solve this. You know, sort of economic situation because obviously those who are you know those who follow the rules pay the prices in this system so those who pay you know like middle class citizens like me will pay the most taxes whereas those rich people will pay no taxes so it's not fair to those who follow the rule i hope some technology or some sort of movement will solve this situation. Do you think Bitcoin is that movement or technology? Yeah, obviously it's part of it. Yeah, because Bitcoin is a is a form of digital ownership, which never existed before. Maybe so, definitely. But the tricky part is that right now Bitcoin is some sort of risk on investment. So if when the stock price goes up, the Bitcoin price also goes up. When pro- stock price goes down, Bitcoin prices goes much more like heavily. So if you would like stand those price fluctuation, maybe you can have some you can have some freedom from the current economic situation. Yeah. Do you think that in 10 or 20 years Bitcoin will be ubiquitous and be everywhere? Do you think we'll ever see a world that's priced in Bitcoin? It's a long ways because my my point is that the nation states have to. It's a long way for nation states to collapse. So maybe in the next hundred years or two hundred years, maybe uh, everything will be denominated by some sort of uh, digital uh, currencies or digital assets. So definitely, those future will come. Bitcoin might might be one of them. Yeah. 
cool. Well, man, uh, let's uh, wrap it up. This is great. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think uh, we had a yeah great conversation. So we can wrap it up. Yeah. Very good, very good, Takahiro. Thank you so much, man. This has been uh, really wonderful and eye-opening. So yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Renaissance Podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at kentaro.com. Thanks again and see you next time.